0: hello everyone my name is suki thompson welcome to reset the podcast a place for you to get some inspiration and advice to help you live a more fulfilling work life i do hope that your journey to feel more connected more inspired just a bit more energized starts here Take a moment now with me to reset. This week, I am talking to the incredible Elizabeth Gooch, MBE, the CEO of EG Solutions and a powerhouse entrepreneur. We discuss her path to founding the successful UK tech company and pioneering a new and emerging technology market that today is worth over $3 billion, showing that hard work and determination really does pay off. But most importantly, I love how Elizabeth has been successful by not sticking to the system. Her strength and creativity was used to adopt her own approach, resetting and choosing to take the unconventional path. Together we reflect on the leaders and founders we have both met along our entrepreneurial pathways and the positive and negative traits they have demonstrated to us. We analyze just how important people are to a company and Elizabeth reminds us all that the way you treat your people will come back and not only amplify your brand, but your own personal reputation. A poignant reminder to always be kinder than kind and continue putting your people first. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please click the like button and most importantly, share it with your colleagues at work and your friends and family. Thank you.
1: Hello, how are you today? It's lovely to see you. Love to see you too. Really good, thank you. You're looking well.
0: Yeah, thank you. And um, on a scale of one to ten, how energised are you feeling
1: today, Elizabeth? Oh, it's Monday. Um, I would say seven. Can I go seven? seven? Hmm, I think that's okay. It's going to be seventy-seven the days, but it has to be balanced in your life, doesn't it? Really? So, I'm about a seven this morning.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're going to talk today a little bit about, and you are an extraordinarily successful entrepreneur. And what I love about you is you feel like uh, you're a wonderful mix of being unconventional, but also built a very successful business. So you're conventionally um, successful as a leader, but there's lots of things about you and the way that you work you have beautiful I don't know probably lilac hair um you know that's that's just not the norm so I'm fascinated to talk a bit about that and particularly I know you've got um you know to talk about culture and how you create performing cultures that are also good and kind and nice um but let's start a little bit talking about you because I'm always fascinated as to where entrepreneurs come from um How Did you know when you were young that you would be uh, an entrepreneur?
1: No. The word I'd use when I was young is, I want to be free. Um, Freedom is one of my core values. And um, freedom of thought, freedom to act. Interestingly, I did a post on this only this morning because a, a really great punk rock star passed away at the weekend. Obviously got missed with all the remembrance thing, but... Um I was a punk rocker, so my unconventionality started there from a very conventional family of all musicians. Um and the only thing I wanted to play was my face, as I said to my father, What instrument I want to play my face? He said, Well, on you go then. Where's that effect? Um, so punk rock was um it created a thing. It was about independence and freedom of thought and standing up for your rights and what you believe is, in, is right as well. Mm. Um, and also opposing oppression of, of any kind, of every kind. Um, and I don't think I've stopped, I think I've ever, I've ever not been a punk rocker. I mean, the word punk has probably dropped, dropped a little bit occasionally. I've become full on rock what <laughs> rocked my way through my life I think is a, a little bit of a hedonistic lifestyle I think is probably what people would say about me so I generally think that entrepreneurism is, uh, is a is personality flaw, because it's founded on a personality flaw of some description and mine was about just not wanting to be constrained in any way um, And I, it wasn't helped by my mum teaching us there's no such word as can't Nice. This is quite this this was in that extreme level because my little sister was eight years younger than me and we found her at the bottom of the stairs one day in tears crying because she tried all afternoon to fly by jumping off the steps and couldn't do it and she said but I've got to do it because mummy said there's no such word as can't yeah so you know, I've, I've never seen obstacles really so that's the thing I'm, I'm sort of blunderbussed my way through and worked it out as it went along so so, if you look back at your school
0: days, would they have said, um, "You know, you are you are a little bit maverick," and and perhaps you
1: know, did it start then? Were you outspoken then? Yeah, two two things it would say. Elizabeth talks too much, and she's a bit of a spitfire. I remember that on a school report. Mm-hmm. She can be a bit of a spitfire. I'm not quite sure what that meant actually, because I love spitfires. As it happens now, they strike a thing in my heart when I hear them. Oh. So it's. But it didn't help that I was actually asked to leave school. So, you know, nowadays you wouldn't be asked to leave school for what I was asked to leave school for, but it was asked to leave. And so, so I just... I will have to ask, what were you asked to leave school for? using bad language at the headmaster, you know, who's to the F word. And, uh, I mean, nowadays you probably get a house and um, You'd certainly be a hero amongst your peers, but it wasn't quite the same then. Mm. So, um yeah, it was a, it was a case of having to work. It came, it came from... a. I wouldn't say poor family, but not certainly not well-off family.
0: Yeah.
1: And so getting away from, it was a, a very away from motivation and always wanted to be free and wanted to work for myself, but didn't know what at. Okay. So that, that's how it came about.
0: So you're there having left school, you want to uh, have freedom. When was the kind of first career reset that enabled
1: you to begin to... 26. <laughs> I know it exactly. So, I, my, so my dad was like, well, if you're not going to university, you've got to get a job. So I worked in various part-time things, including some factories, so did some production management work. I wasn't a production manager. I just followed him around making his tea and filling up his clipboard with paper. But I was just fascinated by the whole way that production lines worked. Um, anyway, that wasn't enough for my father who then said, you need to get a proper job. And by that, then he meant in a bank because banks were proper then. Mm-hmm. Yes. David didn't at point in our history. Mm-hmm. Um, Two thousand and eight, remember it exactly. So, um, so I went and got a job in the management trainee scheme at Midland Bank, and after six months, wanted to leave that because it was extremely boring. Um, and they said nobody leaves the Midland Bank trainee scheme. I <laughs> there, so they sent me off to what was. Really, um, service sector, white collar work study, which I'd seen, obviously, in the factory. So it was actually quite by chance to put the two things together. And I loved it. And I brought factory thinking to the way I approached the projects and was very successful at them um, and helped out a number of departments to get much better. Kept applying to be promoted, to be a manager, kept being told I would have to be an assistant manager. So I said the F word a second time and went to another financial services organisation. A pretty similar thing happened over four years, but I absolutely love that. So we were launching financial services products on the back of the Building Societies Act, doing some quite innovative things. And people kept saying, we could do with one of you, we could do with one of you. So I printed some brochures and started a business and sent them out to names that I got so it was all cold calling. So the only business experience I'd had or sales experience I'd had up to this point was Everest double glazing, which involved knocking on doors, selling windows, another job that my father didn't like me having. Yeah. So the, the the only way I knew how to sell anything was the same way. So I printed some brochures, got on the train to London and went and knocked on doors and annoyed secretaries and doormen, because most of the banks had doormen at that time, until I got appointments with people and got jobs. Um, and it went from there, and um, and then how did it how did it grow?
0: So I mean that's a that's a fantastic start, isn't it? And it's how so many kind of you know small businesses start, but then they don't manage to scale. What happened?
1: Um, so interestingly, the guys who had worked with at the building society also wanted to be free. They also wanted to work for themselves. And so they were very much of the you know, you get the jobs, we'll leave and we'll come and work with you. And so they did. And so we were a gang of merry, merry men. And the, and the, and the thing about the, that team was we were a great team and we delivered great results within our, within our company that we worked for at the time. So when we translated that into we're now doing this for clients, they were just wowed with the energy and the enthusiasm and the delivery. We had a really, really tough boss um, in that company mm. and so you know what was great about him was that you know he really raised our standards what was bad about him he was a bully but actually it didn't bother me because I've been used to whole on my life anyways So I, mean, I, I don't think people were quite so precious about it. I'm, not, I'm not saying bullying is precious but I don't think we recognized that it was so bad no, you know, I I no, 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 absolutely. No, I'm absolutely convinced we didn't. I mean, we had cane at school and board rubbers thrown at our heads. So if you live, if you grew up in a, an environment of violence, you didn't notice bullying at work. It was a sort of actually, was pleasant behaviour, really, compared to what you'd had with the kickings yeah. on the street type of thing. So um, yeah, so so that started it. So that was a group of us, and it, and it went from there. Mm-hmm. After two or three of these big projects, we realised there was actually a a common, it was a common problem. And well, there were two things that actually we did. One was we're growing, we now realize that if we don't sort of design what we do, it's growing in a very haphazard way. So we've got to stop and go, actually of all of the things that we do, this is the thing that's the most successful. Let's back that horse and and follow that, that thing only. The theory being if you chase two rabbits, both get away. Yep. So we're going to chase this one rabbit, and then realizing also that that could be systemized in a way that we could actually build a technology product. And so the technology product came in, which layered on top of services, then some software licenses, um, and you know maintenance because it was all one-time licensing then with old old-school maintenance contracts. Um about project number four. Actually, I'll go back and tell you the story about how the software was launched. Yeah, once, yeah. We'll talk about um, once we once we'd actually developed the product and implemented it about four times, I got a massive a big phone call, the phone call that you always want to get, which is the IT director at a Life and Pensions Company wanted me to go and meet him. And it was like, oh, my God, <laughs> good to see God. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it gave me a kicking because they decided to network this standalone software and it had brought the network down. Mm-hmm. So I, I said to him, well, it was never meant to be networked. And he said, well, I'll have you know, young lady, because I was young then. Yeah. This is mission critical software. You need to go away and develop it to work on a network. How much will it cost me? And I just plucked a number out the air and said 200,000. And he said, well, do me a contract and let's get on with it. And I don't know where this came from, but I said to him, and obviously that means we keep the copyright because we didn't use the word IP then. Yeah. And he said, oh, of course. He said, I'm not in the business of software. So he actually gave me 200,000 to redevelop the software as a networked thing. And we just got started with their chosen database, which yep. was Sybase, and they contacted us and said we've changed our mind. We'll need to repay you that first eighty thousand to redevelop it on Microsoft SQL, um, and that that started our partnership with Microsoft. So, I, I think you you make your own luck by being in the right place, but you know, luck does come into it. I'm absolutely convinced of it. And there was just yeah. um, absolutely amazing stories about you know another client that gave me three checks for two and a half million and then ran me up and said, I don't think I should have done that. Can you put them in our bank account? and Draw it down as you do it. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. You know, those things wouldn't happen. So pre 2008, where there was like clearly no financial controls, we, yes. we got loads of stuff, and including on that project, turning up to install software, no um, network, no no um, network software being purchased. He sent me around to PC World to stick it in my car boot because he couldn't wait three months for IT. You know, stuff like that. You just now that you're like, oh, my God, cyber and all of that sort of thing. So,
0: yeah. Gosh, gosh. So, um, uh, and, and the company, was it, did
1: you call it um, uh, EG Solutions yeah. from the beginning? Uh, was it yeah. always- by, uh, by accident? Why did you call it that? Uh, well, it wasn't by accident. It was, got, we, we all sat around, and we went, what are we going to call it? We, call it? Like, we can't decide. We couldn't agree on what it was going to be. And we needed something because people were chasing us for invoices. We hadn't got a company name. Yeah. So the guy said, well he said, tell you what, call it um um call it EG, um, and then we'll change it once we've once we worked out what it is. But it got going at such a pace it never changed. And you know, I absolutely hated that in the end because it was like being over a corner shop. You know, and obviously everybody else had all really great names like dolphin and orange and you know, whatever, whatever, and they yeah. called it could call it so many people called it Egg, which was extremely annoying because there was a financial services company called Egg. Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah, there was. was. Yeah, there was. Not them. <laughs> the software was launched with um, a deck of 35mm slides, which I think nowadays you might call an MVP. Uh, and we launched it at Gaydon with, uh, I don't know, I'm going to say about 50, 50 financial services companies there. We took three orders on that night, and we used those that money, um, which were deposit invoices, deposit deposit uh, orders. We used that money to get started with the product, and it went from there. And until we listed, we raised no money, and all of our software was developed out of or paid for out of the profits that we generated on the service side. So it was bootstrap, but you know, cash had to be cash generative because I started it with hand yeah yeah
0: and you know at that sort of time you know there were a few female you know leaders of businesses they set up Martha Lane Fox is about the only one I can think of but there weren't really very many and I know talking to other women um you know one there weren't that very many women and secondly actually raising capital was really difficult um and what was it like for you do people did people even realize that you were that you built and were the founder of this company
1: most people still don't and i absolutely love that when i go on holiday and i'm me and then people then they get around to ask me last because i'm probably the oldest in the group and they go what do you do and i can tell them and they go <laughs> and they're really shocked um well this whole thing about being a woman when our business was sold there were actually three female ceos on aim running tech companies and two of them, one was bought out. We were both we were both bought out. Two of us bought out at the same time. She was retained. One was retained and kept in another role, but she wasn't the CEO. Um, but I'm going to say it, none of that ever mattered. I mean, there was one. There's only one. Well, two stories actually of you know what what people nowadays might call sexism or ageism. Where you know isms. Yeah, I think by virtue of being a Punk rock, where you basically walk around with your fingers in the air all the time. You know, you didn't care what people thought. You just got on with it. Did what you needed to do, and I, I think that's the case, really. So my daughter would say to you, if, if anyone ever tells me you can't, I will return. you Watch me. I'll just go and do it anyway. <laughs> so, so, so it's you kind determined, of- I think, just determined.
0: What- yeah, it's interesting. And then you know, as it was growing. How did you create the culture? Did you have a feeling for this is how I want the business to be? This is how I want it to grow. This is how I want it to feel working there. Or did it just evolve?
1: Uh, I think I had a very clear idea of the type of people I wanted to work with. Right. Um, and that in turn created the culture. So we had um, very clear values values which followed the mnemonic of can do. So you were very much a sleeves rolled up, pragmatic person, um, get on with stuff, very driven, you know, those, those type of people. If you were a person that wanted to sit and pontificate and write a lot of reports, then you wouldn't fit in that culture because our whole business was not about report writing. Our whole business was about working with others to help other people be better. So we had a very clear vision of what the business should do, which was to transform operations management throughout the world and to help ordinary people deliver extraordinary results. Those were the two parts. So it wasn't about us doing the transformation, it was helping people to transform their own results. I mean, in doing so, they would do better. So our business model was basically, we'll deliver the software and the implementation services. When you get the results, then you will pay. We'll teach your people how to do this and sustain this after we've gone. And that led to two things. One is you've got to make sure it works because you want to get paid for what you've done. Well, you put in the, the cart well and truly, you know, the horse well and truly in front of the cart, which is you've got to make it work for the customer first. And the second thing was the sustainability side of it meant year on year they would keep repeating and keep, you know, rebuying. And that was really material to us. So hiring people who would who could deliver, you know, there's none of this theoretical project management stuff. I always sit behind a computer and I'll do it all on Microsoft project. I don't care about that. You know, we would use a very simple Gantt chart and we'd have everybody around the table. It's like, right, let's get things done. Let's get things done. Um, so very much pragmatic culture, very much ca- can do. Everybody really wanting to deliver that result for the customer. And we had long serving people, a good chunk over 10 years, over five years, But equally, we did have a, I wouldn't say a revolving door, but we did have a door that Mm. if it didn't work in the first six months, then, you know, that door was there to be used. We were really absolutely clear about that.
0: Right. Uh, Um, Yeah. And, I mean, you said uh, that the way that customers paid is on result, then then you'd be paid. Was that um, a model that was
1: in existence at that time? No. I made it up. I read a book. I can't even remember who it was by. Somebody to do with hotels. And it was this guaranteed payment by results model in the US. Um, And it sat in front of this client who said, well, why would I use you and not? I can't remember who the big five, one of the big four it was, and I can't remember who it was at the time. And I just quick as a flash said, because we guarantee the results, with my fingers crossed behind my back, Mm -hmm. that we could do it. Um, And after three projects, we realized it was it, it was it would deliver. So the guarantee was we will improve productivity by 25 percent in six months, but time and time again it was 30, 40, 50 percent mm-hmm. just by teaching people how to manage work and people better. Um, and so it was not just work harder, but it was actually work better within yes. their as well. Yeah. And
0: did you have any times when it didn't work and you didn't get paid?
1: Yep well, so before we listed there were three. Okay. Um, and that was um, largely to do with bad record keeping on behalf of the consultants. So we built it into the software, so that the software actually tracked it. And as soon as we built it into the software, there was no, there was no issue after that. Yeah. And then we then we acquired a business that had a bit more of a shaky track record, and so there were one or two issues that we had to sort out with that. But we converted them onto their our product at our cost. Yeah, uh, you know, and relaunched, and away they went from there.
0: Yeah, yeah. So even from, and, and you know, often you see it's it's those few that fail that you do something different and you learn something from, isn't
1: it? Stabbing in the heart. But that was five out of over a thousand implementations. That's That's, that, those are the numbers. yeah. so it wasn't it wasn't a bad track record, and I took it very personally. You know, no, 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 don't, remember. don't that.
0: And how did you? So what was happening in your life at the same time? So you're running this business. It's growing quite fast. What was, what was happening there? Because I think it's quite often quite difficult to manage everything, isn't it?
1: Well, I had a daughter aged 30. Okay. And she's now 31. Uh, she says that EG was her big sister. So that's what, that's how she says it. I had this policy of, you know, I, I didn't work away as much because I'd got a bigger team. Until we went international, then I started to to travel a lot more. Mm. So if I was working with a client, most of our clients were two hours away. I would travel every day yeah. and yeah. make sure I saw her beginning of the end or the end of the day. So that was always the case. I, I'm divorced three times. So as, as someone recently said to me, Ladiel, you're a bit of a handful. I think that's probably the. It's so <laughs> nice, way. Okay. Well, difficult to tie down, I think, is the thing. I mean, the freedom thing
0: mm.
1: is has so many benefits, but it also comes with disadvantages, which is that, you know, I don't want to be tied down. I don't want to be, mm.
0: uh,
1: I wouldn't say controlled, but I don't want to be corralled either by conformity
0: or anything like that. So, you know, hence. It's quite interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, you ran a business for quite some time. Of Of those thousand projects, only you said kind of three didn't work. Five, you, you sort of learned from them not not working in the way you yeah. wanted them to. Yeah. And yet, so that's unbelievably successful. And yet in your personal life, three marriages, it's quite a lot for anyone, isn't it? Yeah. Did, did you did you not do the same sort of learning?
1: <laughs> that is such a good question, Siki. I actually did because I also have a rule of three, which is you never get to three. So, you know, first time, shame on me. Second time, shame on you. Third time, it's not happening. And I did get married a third time, but I was convinced by this by this very lovely gentleman that it would be a great idea. Mm-hmm. I didn't really want to, but did. And so, you know, it's a bit like water will always find its natural level into it. So,
0: yeah, yeah. So maybe, yeah. Truth
1: will out is the other expression,
0: I guess. Truth will out. Truth will out. But you're yeah. very, you're very close to your daughter, aren't you? So oh, yeah. you know. Um, and and I love the expression that that she would say that your business was like her, like her sister. I, I, you know, I'd certainly think Jazz and Sam growing up through my two companies, but particularly through Oyster Catchers. I don't know that they'd think it was their extra sister, but definitely, I think they'd feel it was my kind of. Extra child, and as Sam always says, you know, Mum, I think I understand business through osmosis, through sitting through so many of your meetings and listening to what's going on.
1: Yeah. Um, well, is- here's, here's the thing, Suki, our clients. I mean, this was way back. So, so when would this be? So, what are we now? Twenty twenty-two. So we're talking about nineteen ninety-ish, nineteen ninety-one when she was born. Certainly, so the, the late nineties. She would come with me to business dinners in her uh, carry thing. Yeah. And nobody batted an eyelid. Nobody. Really? Gosh, that's interesting. So, you know, when she was born, the hospital was full of flowers from clients. The cards that she had, still to this day, I get Christmas cards from clients to Elizabeth and Katie because she was part of the business. And my old chairman, or uh, he, he's old, but he was my pastor. chairman, um, oh, you yeah. know, he loved her as well, so it was like, a, it, it had a family feel. It did have a family feel. And you know, families, people fall out, but, you, but at the end of the day, you're still a family, you're still pulled together. So that family feel was definitely part of our culture. And um, I think by me being the first one to have a child in the company, it helped because I think I'd have been vile if I hadn't been because I wouldn't have understood. Yeah. So, And, you know, we talk about, you know, all the marriages, etc. but actually... You go know, through some personal kickings. You're much more empathetic with other people's situations, and been a few women. We had a good proportion of women in our tech company. I could see where they were heading before they knew themselves. So I was like helicopter parent, if you like I'm sort of yeah. I, I, I can see where this is going. I yes. can, I can be there with the empathy and the and, and the you know whatever's the support, whatever's needed. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I could see it. It, it. I think it's, it's interesting, isn't it? I think for businesses that don't have a founder, it is just very, it is a very different kind of environment, isn't it? I think, you know, a lot of companies say, oh, it feels like a family, but somehow founder owner developed businesses genuinely do. And and I wonder whether sometimes it's because decisions are not as rational as they are perhaps in a more corporate environment. Mm,
1: That's very possibly true. Although having said that, some of the founders that I work with are dreadful with people. Um, And it's almost like one of the last things that they think about it. And in one particular case, people are expendable. And, you know, to be trampled on once I've got everything out of you that I want, you know, that's to that extreme. Mm. Um, And so, you know, I have this sort of, Eight-point core strengths that founder CEOs need to develop. People matter. It's called people matters, but we drop the S occasionally because people do matter. You mm. can't. You know the way you treat people will reflect on you. You're on your brand, and it will reflect on your reputation as an employer later down the track. So just you know, be careful what you do.
0: Yeah, yeah. So if you've got these these eight, um, what what are the key ones?
1: Well, they're all key. Unfortunately, there's a ninth, which often like I said there's well, there's nine really, and they go well. What's the ninth? And I said well, the ninth is you. It starts and ends with you. You know, what is it that you want to achieve, and are you looking after you? Because if you don't do that, you can't do the other the other eight. But these are the eight really key disciplines, and you know, I talk about it being the the plates that you need to spin. And not every founder. In fact, I've never met a founder that can spin all eight well. I couldn't. You know, sometimes I'd have to really double down on one plate because of, you know, circumstances. could be, a you know, a customer problem or it could be, you know, financial crash 2008 and half your clients going bust and all of that sort of thing. So you, you've really got to double down on money. Um, but, you know, without those eight things, the business will topple. And most tech companies that I see, they're really, really good at the product. Yes. Um, and these other eight things just get just get forgotten, you know, the product is what you're delivering. Your business is able to cover things. So you know your your vision and where you're trying to go to is is vital because if you don't know where you're going all the roads lead there, type of thing. Yep. How we get customers, how we service customers and retain customers, you know, vital. Messaging, you know, your proposition, that sort of thing. People, as I've mentioned, money, absolutely, yep. and governance you know, the, yes. the credentials for a business. I mean, you and I both sit on PLC boards, so we see the extreme of governance. Yep. But a lot of tech companies, startups, etc., that take on other people's money, there's a level of governance that you have to have anyway because right. it's the law. But the minute you take on other people's money, you're duty-bound, I believe, to have, you know, a good level of governance and someone independent to help you make sure that you're doing that. Yes,
0: Yes. uh, No, I completely agree. I wonder whether you feel that over the time and now, you know, um, you very much, as you say, you sit on uh, boards, you're a non-exec, you work with other founders and entrepreneurs. Has there been a shift as governance and PLC companies have become, I think, in many ways, more aware of things like how to look after their people, of having good cultures, of... You know this sort of balance that perhaps some of the entrepreneurial-driven businesses haven't had that same awakening. Whereas I would have said in the past it was probably the other way around. You know there were there's some there were some really exciting but very people-focused organisations um, that were that were owner-founder-driven, um, but actually it's sort of reversed, or is it just very much each their own?
1: So my view on this is that you very rarely see anyone on a board with responsibilities for people matters. Um, and in fact, if you look at most agenda, board agenda, you very rarely see anything to do with people. Rodney Hill, I was talking about earlier as a chairperson, he always starts with health and safety because of some of the roles that he's done, well-being, of the safety and well-being. He yeah. once under the... And it ends with who your top three performers, who are your bottom three performers, what are you doing about both? If you're there the same thing three months on the row, what am I doing about you? Because you're not actually doing it. So that's the, the mentoring that I actually had. But it, he himself was obviously a financial person. He wasn't a people person. But I mean, obviously, you and I both do REM. But people is not just about money. You know, money is what they're legally entitled to for giving you their labour for the last month that's sort of you get out of jail card really that's your yeah. bottom low. how you look at people is then the rest of that pyramid and how far up you choose to go um, you know just running a few training courses on team building and stuff isn't isn't really what it's about is it no so in terms of do i think it's changed when i joined financial services first job i was told financial services is a people business and that is most definitely the case. The processes were dreadful, systems were dreadful, they were collections of people doing things. Um, I think actually, people stuff has, even with the growth of legislation to protect people, I think the actual people stuff has reduced. Yeah. Um, and ESG is trying to address that balance, but even then, you see people's eyes glaze over. It's like oh, another thing we've got to comply with, and don't really understand what you're really trying to get out. Yeah, yeah, I completely.
0: It's it's fascinating, isn't it? That, and I wonder whether it will change in the future. And obviously, you know, that's partly what Let's Reset's about is just trying to get businesses to understand the energy of the people, the way you treat your people, will have a direct result on the their delivery, their performance and also their happiness and actually you know we kind of all want to be happy it's just strange that when we go into the business we don't talk about that anymore it's kind of like you know Jeff. and exactly and you go into a board meeting and nobody would ever consider whether our are, are people are happy or not until you get yeah. a bad you know review yeah it's it's um
1: it's, it's got a way to go hasn't it and actually talk about reset which is great great words by the way um Obviously, reset with COVID, explosion in demand for people, not enough people um, for the jobs that were around. We're now having another reset with a recession where unemployment is meant to yeah. increase. So what happened when we have the first reset? Everybody starts worrying about well being. My fear is we reverse back again with a recession and unemployment. Well, it doesn't matter anymore.
0: Yes, exactly. Because we can have whoever we like and people will be frightened to leave. Yeah. And it'll, you know, we'll have to wait and see. Because I think what what is good is there are some enlightened businesses who have measured the impact of making yes. people feel better and they are showing that it makes a big difference. And if they're the ones that can keep and grow or, or yeah. grow more successfully than the others or re- not reduce as fast that will make a difference, but you're right. I mean, you know, you can feel that could happen easily.
1: Well, what you do, very helpfully, is help businesses to understand that with data. And when that data can be linked to the finances, now we've got attention. Yeah, yeah. Because customer service was always spelt C-O-S-T, you know, this is going to cost us. Um, How can we reduce it? Meaning, you know, reduce the number of people doing it. same same thing with people, really, when they see that there's actually an almost straight line between well being and profit, yes. then, I, then, then maybe we'll get attention. So, thank you to you for, for bringing data to the whole subject of well being.
0: Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you. Um, let's come back to your business. So, um, there's EG, and you are uh, grown, and you decide, did you decide? that you wanted to make some money did you decide that you wanted to just float it what what made you move and reset that last bit of the business
1: Uh, well definitely there was some ego in there but um, the real reason was because we'd never raised any money and we wanted to do another redevelopment of the software big scale so as I mentioned we started out in the world of um one-time installations one-time licensing and when those licenses were installed, it went on to the client software. We wanted to move to a hosted platform. And so we needed to redevelop the product again to be able to do that um, and to move into the cloud. So we were going to go to VCs, get some money, and then we hired a finance director who thought it was a great idea to list on AIM. Chairman didn't want to list. He didn't think the business was ready and he was 100% right. So, you, you know, we'd never go. I've got two answers to this now. Would you ever go from never raising any money at all to listing? The good advice would be no, you wouldn't do it. But I have to say what I see amongst the younger founders that I work with now is raising money is a full-time job. They're constantly at it, and there's a lot of noise associated with it. In hindsight, listing on AIM was much easier than they have to go through. So we went from... Um, Having never raised any money to listed in six months.
0: Wow! Um, wow. So give that, us, just give us a bit of an idea about the size of the business
1: then, and and then what happened when you listed. Give us some numbers. Um, well, uh, four million turnover, but starting every year at zero because we got no recurring revenue. Yes. Um, and so the the goal was to swap that one time revenue for recurring revenue. So effectively starting again and building that. Up. Um, and in four years, we built, you know, a really good recurring revenue book that got us back to that. But I mean, it was um, in the eye of the storm. Let's say that because um, our business was eighty percent services and all one-time revenue, yeah. very unpredictable in in terms of the pattern of sales. You know, no scalable, repeatable sales engine that you look for now. So it was very hit miss whether we hit the numbers or not. I and mean, you could literally miss two weeks by the year end to get a signature on something, and you get a profit warning. So we had a we had a history of we went from being the darlings of AIM one minute to being the worst thing ever. And so, you know, my my shareholder meetings were either lovely warm cups of coffee, or you know, I'm sitting with my back to you because you're really annoying me. You haven't delivered the numbers. It was brutal. That was that. That side was mm-hmm. brutal. Um so yeah, that's that's how we ended up on AIM.
0: And did anyone teach you what to do when you went on to AIM?
1: No, but I did learn fast by making a lot of mistakes, which is why I say to you know, my, my mentees now, you know, I spent 30 years making a lot of mistakes so I can help you to avoid some of these. Uh, you know, that's the whole point behind it, really, is that you help people get to A to B quicker than you actually did. There was one particular analyst within a broker who used to spend quite a lot of time with me explaining what investors looked for. And being a good salesperson, I'm pretty good at joining dots and looking at strategy. I'm good, strategy, good at strategy, actually. Yeah. So if somebody tells me, this is what it is that people are looking for, I'm really good at going, well, this is where I am and that's where I need to be. What do we need to do? Um, so yeah that's Mm -hmm. that's we learned by making a lot of mistakes and the business had to pivot from being services to product so we literally flipped it over and onto recurring contracts rather than repeatable contracts which still were valuable but not contracted and then building that over time yeah and then so how long how much longer did you stay with the business and, and and when did you decide to exit it um, it, Well, exit was two thousand and seventeen. Um, I think, if I'm honest, I'd have gone on forever because <laughs> I absolutely loved what I did. I still love it to this day. And in mm-hmm. fact, only recently had to get the tool bag out to do it again for the first time in five years. And it was like, it was like I thought, oh, God, I like getting back on a bicycle. I can. Oh, I'm really good at this. I can do this. <laughs> um, so, but you know, when you've got other people's money and you've got outside investors. And they get a chance of a good return. You know, some had come in at six pence and the offer was one pound and twelve. You are duty-bound, really, to listen to what the majority want, um, even if that's not what you want for yourself. No, no. And I- then the minute I signed, I would got people ringing me up going, what did you sign for? We didn't really want you to sign. I'm like, what?
0: <laughs> yeah, no. Well, it's so hard, isn't it? You know, And, and what I was going to say, how did you then... Because I think that's another big reset, isn't it? You sell, you've built your business, you know, you, you've made some money, but actually that's not necessarily the life that you want. How did you reset yourself to cope with a new kind of life?
1: Um, I'm still resetting, I think, actually, to be completely honest. Um mm-hmm. And I do think there's still another business in me. And that's the thing I, I'm – and I don't particularly – I think I'd rather buy – into something than start from complete scratch. Just from a speed point of view, because I'm 61, mm. and you to think, you know, if it's, if it's a 10-year cycle, you've got to be realistic about what you can achieve, so let's try and bring that back to sort of seven. Yeah. Um, you know, hopefully I'll go on forever, but you never know. Um, so I still think that's in me. Um, uh, helped very well by people that know me, so people who ran me up the next day and said, Okay, no, it's tough, but I've got this. i would like to have a look at it. And spookily, I think I did the same as I did when I started, e.g., really, which was go out there and do stuff until you see there's a pattern, and then you can work out what the requirement is. Hence the model with the eight, the eight strengths. So,
0: yeah. And, and how have you looked after your own kind of well-being? What have you What have you done?
1: Lost five and a half stone since I sold my company. Try that. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah and I know. Well, I put, I put one, one and a bit back on, which is a bit disappointing, but I've got a bad, a bad knee at the moment. So um, movement is important to my well-being, um, and being outside is important to my well-being. And obviously running a business, I mean, it was literally, you know, seven o'clock, start in the morning, working. Travel before that seven o'clock start, very rarely got home before half past nine, ten o'clock. So you can see where the divorces came into this. Um, and um, sat on your backside most of the time, you're either driving on a train, on a plane, in a meeting, everything involved, eating. Um, so you, you know, your body just, just, just. Forgets to function, really. I think that's what it is. Because you, you say, and I'm a stress eater, I'm an adrenaline junkie. When I mean, I'm got adrenaline going, I eat. So that was an opportunity to put myself first. Mm. For, and so losing that weight has been has changed my life, really saved my life, as my doctor said. Yes, well, yeah, yeah. I,
0: I'm 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 sure it's it's well it, it it's a it's a massive conundrum, isn't it? You know, loads of people, we have the same conversation all the time, every week in our workshops. I want to do more physical exercise, but it's really difficult because I work so much. How do I do it? I think it's easier now that people work from home a little bit. Yeah, um, if you have one of those jobs where you can work from home, and I appreciate not
1: everyone yeah. can, but yeah, I think for I a lot of executives, it is making a difference. I do put it in my diary now, though, which I did, never did before. Right, I- so you prioritise it. In fact, I have a little helper called a dog, um, and so he has needs that need to be met, and so you it forces you to do it. So, mm. uh, although I'm the world's laziest dog, but you know he still needs to go out, so that helps. So I just you know made that the focus, um, and away we go. So that's why I say you know yes, there's eight things, but there's a ninth, which is we have to look after you because one of my guys used to say to me when this is all over just make sure that you've got something left for you. And I used to go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually he turned out to be 100% right. Yeah. Yeah. It's
0: so interesting. I, I was talking to executive the other day, a COO of a large company. And, you know, we were talking about this and, you know, he he would resonate with a lot of things you've talked about, a, apart from he's a cycling fanatic as well. But he said, you know, Even I've been on holiday. I always work on holiday. I always work at the weekends. He was talking about, actually, I don't even really like working from home. I like coming to the office. So I'm either present and physically there or I hide away on one of the floors. Actually, happily married, he would say. Um, But I think the adrenaline of just being there, doing it, is so strong and so apparent that... You know, you, you say the question, he goes, oh, well, I do cycling. Yeah, yeah, but do you competitively do that? Yes. Is there anything you don't do that you're measuring or you're competitive at or really is for
1: you? And I think the answer is no. No, but at least when he's cycling, he can't be on his laptop because you do have to. Yes. it's quite And it's quite solitary. So I would, I mean, walking is my thing. Mm-hmm. and But it, it needs to be a walk of... 45, 50 minutes, and I'd find the first, you know, 20 minutes, you're just getting into the rhythm. And when you get into the rhythm, then it becomes meditative. And I think cycling is like that for people. And it's it gives them a chance to switch to switch off with no contact. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, I, oh, yeah. and I do agree with that. Yeah,
0: I do agree yeah. with that. And I think, you know, any form of sport that allows you to do that, I just, you know, I, what I do, though, see is particularly high-performing individuals, are then very competitive about their, about everything. Yeah. Their work life, their relaxation is competitive. And and part of the point is almost you need to be not competitive in your relaxation. This thing here, how many steps have I done? Yeah. <laughs> I know. Have
1: I moved in the last hour? <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: exactly. I mean,
1: everything is like that, isn't it, really? Everything is. Yeah, I think it is, and
0: I think you know if you're if you're that kind of person, it is um it is the way it is. So, um, finally then, Elizabeth, and you said you think there's maybe one more company in you. Um, you are, you know, very close to your daughter still. Um, you know, I know supporting and talking to her about what she's now doing in her life. Um, you're helping and coaching other entrepreneurs and you know you run rem and businesses what is there anything else is there anything else in the in your life that you think that's what i would like to have to make you feel that uh, you're complete
1: i feel i'm complete already which i'm very fortunate to be able to say that I, mean, I but i also feel i'm at a strange point in my life because obviously divorced built a successful business sold a successful business You know, can have a blank sheet of paper in front of you. Had the big house, sold the big house deliberately to downsize because it was just too much, you know, just too much noise. Um, Blank sheet of paper can do anything you want. That's really scary, that is. You need something on that, you need a dot on that paper that says, I've got to do. Um, So I end up spending a lot of time worrying about not knowing where I want to go next. Mm-hmm. And that I find quite stressful because actually I've always been very driven towards this. Yeah, there's always been something pulling me that way. So it's a bit – I wouldn't say – I'm like a fish in a tank, I think, at the minute. I'm like you know, in and out of hot water. Mm. Um, so it's, it's a bit of a strange thing.
0: Yeah. Have you ever been like th- at this point in any other time in your life?
1: Never. Never, 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 never. I'm, I'm a high D – on a personality psychometric test, you know, you've got driven people need dri- things to be driven towards or to be driving towards, and um, and so you know that that's 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 not it doesn't cause me stress, but it's causes me like come on, come on, come on, get on with it, get on with it, I want to get on with it. Whereas actually, sometimes it's a good idea to just be, and that's something I didn't do after sold my business. I didn't take some time out to think and reflect. I went straight into being busy again, doing different things, and sometimes I think you just do need to reset, stop, yeah. and think. Reset, and you need you need space, you need clear water to be able to do that. I think. Yeah, yeah, and and like you say, I think that's one of the
0: hardest things to do yeah. when you've always been driven, when you've always been going on. Um, you know, we talked earlier about kind of creating a kinder culture, being genuinely kind to yourself. And allowing yourself the time to think, to be, to let stuff happen is possibly the most difficult thing that we can do.
1: Yeah, agree with that.
0: But I know that, um, you know, the right things will come along and we'll talk again, no doubt. And you'll be doing lots more exciting things. But, you know, thank you for sharing your journey and thank you for being so open. You know, I love the fact that you talk about, you know, wanting that sort of sense of freedom. And um, you know you're a, you're a great punk rocker, and you're a great person to stir things up. How weird though! I wanted
1: freedom, and now I've got it. I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> Ironic.
0: <laughs> you know what? As I said it, I was like, "How interesting." We started the conversation with yeah. freedom has driven your whole life. Yeah. And actually, yeah, you're free now. You can do whatever you want. You could do nothing. No.
1: Don't know how to do nothing. That's the problem. Exactly, exactly. Well, (laughs) thank you so much. Lovely to talk to you.
0: Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed Reset the Podcast, I'd love it if you would forward it to your work colleagues, friends and family. Reset the Podcast is a Let's Reset and Advertising Week global production executive producer is Richard Larson, with me Suki Thompson. Thanks to our sponsor Liars Non-Alcoholic Spirits and voiceover artist Talitha Penny. Music provided by Audio
1: Network.